Hey, my name is Austin. Uh, I get to teach every now and again. Uh, and in fact, Torrance still kind of on spring break, but he was here at first service, which was the first time that I've taught while he's here. So this might be my last time teaching. Uh, and so it was good while it lasted, everyone. Uh, thanks, thanks for listening, but this might be it. So, all right, anyway, enough jokes. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, I got my first cell phone. And some of you may be like, sixth grade? suspend judgment, okay? First of all, I was in travel sports, okay? So I needed a phone to be able to call my parents when practice got out, okay? And what, did somebody shout out Bible Bowl making fun of me because I was in Bible Bowl? Come on. I was in Bible Bowl too. (laughs) That's an embarrassing fact. And, and this is more importantly, my parents are obviously cutting edge, right? Because I had a phone when I was in sixth grade. They also like got rid of our house phone when I was like five years old. They were like, these house phones, they're going. We've got phones in our pockets. Why do we need a phone that's connected to the wall, you know? Which, like, now no one has a house phone. But when I was in sixth grade, my parents had phones in their pockets. But what happened when I needed to call a friend or call my sixth grade boo thing, you know? Like, I needed a cell phone, okay? And my parents were like, no, I'm using my phone. And I was like, okay, well, then get me a phone, please. Uh, and so in sixth grade, my parents got me a phone. So all the sixth graders in the room are like, see, Mom? Hold up. Okay, sixth grade. When I was in sixth grade, phones are a little different than they are now. There wasn't a lot that I could do uh, with my phone. But you might be wondering, what kind of phone did you get, Austin? Thanks for asking. You see, because I, when I was in sixth grade, my first phone was a brand new black Razor. Oh, shoot. There it is. Now, I didn't have facial hair, right? I didn't need this razor, but I needed this razor. Three and a half ounces of 13.5 megabyte internal memory. A micro SD expandable port, and can I get a Bluetooth, okay? Did I mention that this was black? Pure awesomeness. Like, this phone was amazing. Now, I, was, I had a phone, but I was still a kid, right? So my parents, now parents in the room, like, don't give your sixth grader a phone. If, if your sixth grader is like, give me a phone. No, I'm not endorsing that at all. Phones are like way different now. But when I was a kid, I had a phone. I was in sixth grade, but I was still a kid. So my parents had to check up on my phone. You know, they had to open it up and check uh, the apps. Well, there are no apps in a razor, are there? I, I don't know. Is like text, is that an, is that an app? Whatever. So uh, they'd have to check the phone calls I was making and they'd even check my text. And they would even read at times an individual like text conversation that I was having with a friend. Oh, talk about embarrassing. You know, when you're 12, like brushing your teeth is embarrassing. You know, like everything is embarrassing. And my parents would even read a text conversation. Now I was their kid, so they knew me pretty well, right? Like they know who Austin is. But when they would look at my phone, it, it gave them probably like a clearer glimpse of who I was, you know? And when they read a text conversation, it was like, there's nothing to hide. You know, it's super embarrassing, but it's also like a clear, a truly clear glimpse of who I am. And that's kind of how the Gospel of John works, not like the embarrassing text stuff. But the Gospel of John, like the first 12 chapters, sort of just give like a a clear picture of who Jesus is, some of his teachings, some of his miracles, that sort of thing. And then the next three chapters, chapters 13 to 16, sort of like John invites us into the phone, you know, like where we actually, we start to see even a clearer glimpse of who Jesus is as he gives his basically farewell words to his disciples. And then in the chapter following, John chapter 17, where we're going to be hanging out this morning, John invites us into like the nitty gritty, like the text conversation where we get a super clear glimpse of who Jesus is as Jesus has just finished in the upper room talking to his disciples, takes time to actually pray to the Father. 
In John 17, John invites us into this intimate conversation between Jesus and the Father. We get a clear glimpse of who Jesus is and, who, and his heart. You see, this prayer in John chapter 17 is a prayer for those who have not yet seen his heart. A prayer for those who have not yet seen Jesus' heart. Now, Jesus praying is not like an abnormal thing, right? Like, we know that Jesus prayed. The other gospel writers want to make sure that we know that Jesus was a man of prayer. They, they tell us Jesus was a man of prayer. But John shows us that Jesus was a man of prayer. In John 17, we have the most profound and extensive prayer of Jesus that we have. You see, up until now, Jesus has been talking to his friends about the Father. In John 17, Jesus talks to his Father about his friends. Up till now, Jesus has been talking to his friends about the Father, and now something switches in John 17 in this intimate conversation between Jesus and the Father where Jesus begins talking to his Father about his friends. It's super cool. And so I'm excited to, to read it this morning with you guys. So if you guys would turn, uh, we're going to have it on the screen. You have it on your phone. Raise your hand if you don't have a Bible and you need one. We're going to have people bringing Bibles. And here's the deal. Like this whole chapter is a prayer. So it's like 26 verses and we're going to read through the whole thing. So if you're like somebody who's like, oh, I don't usually like follow along. Well, this morning we follow along. It's 26 verses and it can be easy to just like let your mind drift. And so whether it's on your phone, on the screen, whatever, uh, be following along as we read this prayer of Jesus. And as you're finding that, uh, two quick things that are just helpful to know. The first is Jesus is praying this prayer out loud. So John makes it clear that Jesus turned his eyes and his voice towards heaven and prayed out loud. So Jesus is not like in the upper room, like all of a sudden he just got quiet and the disciples were like, oh, he must be praying. Like Jesus is praying this prayer out loud. John's not guessing what Jesus is praying. John's recording what Jesus is praying. And the second thing, just to know before we dive in, is the first sentence out of Jesus' mouth is the hour has come or my time has come. And the hour is something that has sort of been looming throughout the book of John, right? Like Torin referenced it a couple weeks ago. At the very beginning of John, Jesus is at this wedding feast in Cana and his mom comes and she's like, hey, will you do some tricks? And he's like, no, woman, my hour hasn't come, he says. And then even later, Jesus is in the temple and some people try and seize him and he's like, no, 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 my hour hasn't come. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is clear, my hour hasn't come. And now all of a sudden, in John 17, Jesus' hour has come. Some stuff's about to happen, and this prayer is sort of the calm before the storm. Jesus lifts his eyes and lifts his voice to the Father. So let's follow along as I read. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. 
All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone though. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me, me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That's a lot, right? Like that's a long, heavy prayer. A lot of you and me and I and you and me and you and I. So what I wanted to do is walk through the 15 points of Jesus' prayer today. I'm kidding. <laughs> That'd be a lot. <laughs> Quick story for you guys. Uh, Olivia, my wife, we, her and I, we went on spring break, not this week, but last week, and we were in St. Augustine, Florida. Anybody been to St. Augustine, Florida before? Maybe? Hey, we got a couple? Okay. So St. Augustine, Florida is the oldest city in the U.S. It's one of like 20 cities that claim to be the oldest city in the U.S., you know? <laughs> But I think this one's legit, like for real, if you Google it and you really get into the nitty-gritty, I think this is actually the oldest city in the world. Anyway, super cool. We had a great uh, spring break, a great vacation. Uh, and on the last day, our checkout <clears throat> was at 10 a.m., but our flight was until like 8 p.m. that day. And you may be like, well, why did you do that? Well, because we're 24 and we do what's cheapest, okay? So that was what was cheapest. So we, che so we checked out at 10 a.m. and we had a rental car. We spent the day at uh, State Park in St. Augustine. And then uh, as the afternoon came, early evening, we, we headed to Jacksonville. But we made one last stop. We were like on our way out, right? Like everything was going, but we made one last stop at an art museum that we had, had Googled and, and thought it'd be really cool to make a stop at. It was super dope. It was free because we're both students, which was awesome. Uh, and we got to check out some awesome art from multiple eras, some special exhibitions, all that sort of stuff. I think we have some pictures. There's us uh, out, outside. So they have amazing art. And then they also have these beautiful gardens with old trees. Like that's like a 400-year-old tree, they said. And, and it just, these gardens like back up right to the beach. I mean, it was just like amazing. It really was one of our favorite parts of the whole trip. 
And the crazy thing was, is we didn't even know that we were going to be doing it really. And it was kind of just like a, a quick little, you know, pivot on our way out, you know. And it was, we really were talking and we were like, man, this was just like a hidden gem out of our vacation. You know what I mean? Something totally unexpected, but something that was so valuable. And this prayer in John 17 is kind of similar to like our stop at the museum, you know? Like Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, the story's picking up pace. He's going to be arrested. He's going to go to trial. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to raise from the dead. He's like on his way out, you know? And John just gives us this quick little this quick little blurb, this quick little prayer of Jesus. It's kind of like our trip, like this little hidden gem that has so much value to the story of Jesus. And so this amazing prayer is, is for those who've not yet seen his heart, right? And so I want to talk about what this prayer reveals about Jesus' heart. But before I do, it's like a really, I mean, it's just a heavy, dense prayer. And for some of you, thinking about it uh, in like an outline might be really helpful. So I just want to fly through this really quick, like the breakdown of this prayer. The first eight verses, Jesus prays for himself. And you may be like, what? You're saying Jesus prayed for himself? I don't mean like he's praying for a nice car or a fancy parking spot or something like that. I mean, Jesus affirms his work on earth. He talks to the Father, anticipates his return and, and all good things. So that's the first eight verses. Jesus prays for himself. The second section is uh, verses 9 to 19. The next 10 verses, Jesus takes time to pray for his disciples, like his disciples that are in the room. This group of, of people who have been following him around for the past three years, they've experienced joy and trial and pain and love. They've experienced everything together. And Jesus takes time in, in this final prayer in, one of his, in some of his last moments, and he takes time to pray for those people in the room, his disciples. And then, and this is the mind-blowing part to me, the last six verses, verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for those who will follow. He prays for his believers, for his church. You see, Jesus isn't an idiot. He knows that he's leaving. He also knows that the disciples in the room with him will one day leave. And Jesus knows that there will be believers, there will be disciples of his who will follow. And Jesus, in his last moments, thinks of himself, which makes sense, you know. He thinks of his disciples in the room, makes sense. But in his final moments and some of his final days, he takes time to actually pray for those who will come. He takes time for, to pray for the church, for us, for you, and for me. Let that sink in. That's crazy. That's powerful. So that's a quick outline, right? Verses 1 through 8, praise for himself. 9 to 19, for the disciples. 20 to 26, he prays for the believers to follow. But what does this reveal about Jesus' heart. If this is a prayer that clearly portrays Jesus and his heart and who he is, what is what 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 does it reveal? I was talking to Olivia, uh, my wife. She's in uh, PA school. She's going to be a PA soon, physician's assistant. For those of you who don't know what that means, um, and so she's like, she knows all this gross stuff that I don't want to know anything about. You know, like I hate, I hate like blood and body parts and everything. You know, so I was talking to her about you know Jesus' heart, and she was like. And these three things, and she was like, oh, well, did you know that um, the heart, uh, which if you've ever seen a heart, it's like gross, you know, it's so gross looking and blood and stuff. She was like, did you know the heart can be like broken up? One of the best ways to think of, she called it the cardiac system. I was calling it the heart system, so I'm glad she corrected me last night. She's like, dude, it's called the cardiac system. It's like, oh, okay. So that system can sort of be thought of one of the best ways to like break it down or whatever. She told me, so if I'm wrong, it's all on her. Like find her and you know, correct her or whatever. Yeah, three ways, like there's three parts, you know. So the veins, 
carry the blood, uh, carry the blood to the heart. The heart is a muscle, so there's the veins, there's the muscle, the heart is a muscle. It's really, it can be really strong or really weak, I guess. Uh, and then it pumps the blood out through the arteries. So you have the veins, you have the heart, or sorry, the muscle. See, I suck. You have the muscle, and then you have the arteries. Three parts of like this cardiac system of the heart, right? And I was like, oh, that's so cool because I feel like this prayer in John 17 reveals like three parts about Jesus' heart. And so, we okay? Oh, okay. <laughs> Thought someone was like choking or something. And I was like, somebody. All right, cool, cool. So this prayer in John 17 reveals three parts of Jesus' heart. And that's what I want to spend our time in this morning. These, this, the way that this prayer, what it reveals about Jesus' heart. So the first, the first part of Jesus' heart that this prayer reveals is Jesus' relationship with God. So Jesus, it's very obvious that that Jesus has a, a spiritual life of devotion and worship and prayer. The gospel writers want to make sure that we don't just pay attention to his teachings and his miracles, but we also notice that Jesus takes time all of the time to retreat, to pray and converse with the Father because Jesus has a relationship with God. Now, this can get tricky, right? Because like Jesus is God. But one of the things that's most obvious in this prayer in John 17 is there's a clear desire for community. There's a clear desire for conversation between the person of God, between Jesus and the Father. It's obvious that this is not a conversation that they're having for the first time. It's also not a short conversation, right? Like Jesus is not short-winded. We read all 26 verses. This is a long conversation. Jesus wants to talk, and it's been going on for a while. And what's weird is it'd be easy to expect Jesus is like the Zen master. You know what I mean? Like just like, oh, because he's like the divine son, you know? I mean, he's so close with God. You could think, well, he doesn't need community. He doesn't need conversation. But it's actually the exact opposite. Like Jesus lives in conversation with the Father. Jesus lives in relationship with the Father. That's so clear. It's, so, it's revealed so well here in this prayer in John 17. And the coolest thing, the dopest thing about this, this whole prayer and about the life of Jesus is that we are invited in to that relationship. We are invited into that conversation with the Father. So that's the first part of Jesus' heart that this prayer reveals, right? Jesus' relationship with God. The second part of Jesus' heart that this prayer reveals is his vision for the church. So in the three chapters before when Jesus is saying his last words and then in his prayer in John 17, it's obvious that Jesus has thought about this. He's thought about the people that will follow him, that that he won't be physically around. He's thought about his church, and he clearly has a vision for what that group will be like, what that church and community will be like. So I wrote like a little vision statement uh, on behalf of Jesus. It's anchored in John 17. And for those of you who are like vision statement people, you're probably like, well, this is way too long for a vision statement. Whatever. I'm not a vision statement person. This is just for our purposes this morning, uh, so bear with me. But Jesus' sort of vision statement for what his church will be like, uh, we'll have it on the screen, I think it should be. Jesus wants his followers and his church to experience the awe and wonder of God in a community whose truth and unity bear witness to the glory of God. That's a lot. So I would like for you to actually repeat this with me. Say it out loud. Ready? Jesus wants his followers and his church to experience the awe and wonder of God in a community whose truth and unity bear witness to the glory of God. Is that a run-on sentence? Probably. <laughs> it's Jesus' fault, okay? Blame him. 
Let's unpack that because it's like super dense, right? Let's just unpack that really quick. So first part of that statement, Jesus wants his followers to experience the awe and wonder of God. Jesus prays that, that we will be one, that we will know the Father, that we will see his glory. And that kind of sounds like a bunch of like mumbo jumbo. You're like, what does that mean? But Jesus is actually praying for a desire that still permeates our hearts and our lives today, like in our modern world in 2019. You see, all around us, there's a desire for the reality of God, all around us. In our postmodern world where rationalism is king, people are constantly looking for something that feels different. They're looking for something that's transcendent. They're looking for the reality of God. That does not mean that they're looking for church, though. Like, they're not necessarily looking to go to church. In fact, a lot of those people, like, they're at brunch right now, okay? (laughs) They're not looking for church, but they're looking for something transcendent. They're looking for something that feels different. In fact, many of you in this room may have stuck around here at TLC because you came in the door and you said, something feels different here. I can't explain it, but something feels different. That something different is the transcendent reality, the awe and wonder of God that is present here. And when that's experienced, With Jesus, the only true way that it can be experienced, it leaves a joy and a fulfillment that cannot be described. But Jesus prayed for it. He prayed for it over his church in verse verse 13. Check it out. So that's the first part of that statement. Jesus wants his people, his church, to experience the awe and wonder of God. It doesn't stop there, though. In community. Jesus knows that we desire the reality of God. We desire something transcendent. But we also are created for community right? That's how we're designed. Lone wolves die. And so Jesus prays that his, his church will experience community. That's marked by two things, community whose truth. So the first thing, truth. Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them by your truth. So he acknowledges, hey, there's truth out here. I, Jesus, am truth. This word of God that I've given you is truth. And he prays that we as the church, our community, would anchor our experience in that truth that we would anchor our experience in the life of Jesus and in the word of God that he's, he's given us. So he wants us to experience the awe and wonder of God in community whose truth, and then the second part, unity. This concept of unity is like laced throughout Jesus' prayer, this oneness, this unity. You're like, Jesus, give it a rest, man. Like, we get it, <laughs> you know? We get that you want us to be unified. And a lot of us, we hear unity. We hear that Jesus wants us to be one. And today, in our sort of climate, in our context, We hear unity and we think unanimity. We think that Jesus is asking for all of us to agree on everything, for all of us to be the same person. But the reality is, if two people think alike on everything, one of them's not thinking at all. You know what I mean? Like, we're all different people. We have different backgrounds and traditions and ways of seeing and thinking about the world. And Jesus knows this. Jesus wants to celebrate this. And that's why Jesus anchors our unity with one another in our unity with him. He says, as you grow closer to me, you'll grow closer to one another. Kind of like if you grew up in church and youth group, kind of like that cheesy triangle example that you used with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Like, as we grow closer to Jesus, we'll grow closer to one another. And then we'll break up in college, you know? (laughs) oh I'm sorry if you're in high school and you're dating it's gonna work out (laughs) any high school sweethearts in the room that are like yeah right dude none okay or or they're not proud of it whatever (laughs) right so Jesus he wants his people to experience awe and wonder of God in a community whose truth and unity last part bear witness to the glory of God 
bear witness to the glory of God. It's clear that Jesus, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the, the best way that the world will know who he is, the best way the world will know who Jesus is, is our unity. The way that we care for one another, the way that we love one another. What? The best way that people will know who Jesus is is the way that we care for and love one another, our unity, our oneness? Jesus makes it abundantly clear in this prayer. My sophomore year of college, uh, I got to go on a mission trip to Spain. Some of you may be like, mission trip to Spain? That doesn't, those two don't sound like they go together. Well, you know, whatever. Uh, we, <laughs> we originally had planned to go to West Africa, Sierra Leone, to work with a long-term mission there. That was the year the Ebola virus broke out, and so we were sort of redirected to Spain. Not like on our trip, but like a couple months before school was like, no, you can't go there. So uh, we happily were like, okay, we'll go to Spain. Even though we were in Spain, though, we still had like that, that common attitude of, of being on a mission trip where you're like, we're going to be Superman or Superwoman to whoever we interact with. We're going to be changing everything in the streets. We're going to be doing VBS camps, taking pics with little kids, you know, like it's, it's going to be awesome. And that was not our experience when we got to Spain. <laughs> that was not our experience. You see, when we got there, we learned that our trip was going to be a lot more about experiencing the culture and the climate of Christianity in Europe. And then we would get to do a few English camps on behalf of the long-term mission that we were there supporting. Now, in hindsight, this trip became way more impactful and way more beneficial for us and for the long-term mission that we were there supporting. But in the moment, like, it was really hard to feel like we weren't doing anything. You know what I'm saying? And it wasn't until the end of the trip that many of us saw our impact at all. But lucky for us, this was an impact that would change the hearts and minds of many of us on the trip, including myself. So when we got to Spain, we were a day late. That's a whole other story. The traveling was horrible. Um, and we got to Madrid, and when we got there, we were introduced to our bus driver. Uh, his name was Fernando. We have a picture of Fernando. He's a real, oh, look at that guy. You know, what a great, what a great guy. Fernando was a bus driver, right? He's a charter bus driver. And so we get introduced to Fernando, and they're like, hey, this guy's going to be driving you around for the next three weeks. Now, Fernando was awesome. Uh, Fernando didn't speak, like, hardly any English. Uh, and Fernando had not been, a group, uh, been around a group of American college students, which is a whole other experience, you know? And uh, he had also never been around a group of Christians. And so uh, Fernando had sort of like a paradigm or a way of seen his role as a bus driver. So as a bus driver, he would drive his group around, he would drop them off, they would go out to eat or, you know, go see a tour or whatever, and Fernando would stay back, like, do his own thing. He was kind of, like, separate from the group, right? Like, that's how Fernando thought about being a bus driver. Uh, but we, uh, we had different things in mind, you know? So uh, the first night, like, one of us just on a whim, we were like, hey, Fernando, you want to come to dinner with us? So Fernando came to dinner with us, and some of the Spanish speakers in our group uh, started to engage with Fernando. We got to know him a little bit. Uh, we found out he, was, uh, he had grown up, not right away, but as the weeks progressed, we started to ask, you know, just casual conversation. Hey, you know, uh, what do you, you know, where did you grow up? You know, where are you Catholic, Christian, atheist, whatever, and different questions like that. Turns out he grew up in a, a nominally Catholic family, which is pretty common for that area, and uh, hadn't really thought about faith or Jesus or anything like that. Uh, and throughout the, the three weeks, like, we just got to know Fernando so well. And we couldn't talk. Not all of us could talk with Fernando. But you don't always need to talk to communicate. You know what I'm saying? 
And we just got to know Fernando so, so well. We, we loved hanging out with him. It got to the point where like we would be driving, we got out of the bus to go eat, and Fernando got out of the bus to go eat. We'd, get out of the, we'd pull up, get out of the bus to go tour a cathedral, and Fernando got out of the bus to like tour a cathedral. Fernando was part of the group. He's in all the pictures, we're doing everything with Fernando, like he's part of the group, you know? And when we had to say bye, like that sucked. And we were so sad, and, and so we were all college students, and so we decided we wanted to chip in and get Fernando a departing gift. And so we all chipped in like $3, because I was like, here's all that I have, $3, you know. And, uh, and we, got, we got Fernando a Spanish Bible. And the Spanish Bible that we got, uh, we all wrote uh, some notes in uh, as a, sort of a departing gift. And so as we were, we were crying, we're crying, he's crying, we're having to say goodbye, we're praying, and just lifting Fernando up, he had started to really express like some interest in, in faith and Jesus and things like that. And uh, as, we were, as we were departing, one of my friends in, in good wisdom said, hey, Fernando, like, what's the deal, man? Like, why are you thinking about faith and Jesus and all this stuff? Because none of us had had like a dramatic conversation with Fernando where we like explained the gospel and the Roman road or, you know, something like that. Like none of that had, had happened. He had only gone to church like one time with us and it, it wasn't that great of a church, you know. Like, I mean, it was, it was cool, but it wasn't life-changing, I don't think, for Fernando. And I'll never forget the way he responded to that question. Fernando so quickly said, well, the way that you guys love one another, the way that you care for one another, the way that you laugh with one another, the way you cry with one another, the way that you poke fun with one another, I've never seen anything like it. And I think it has to do with this Jesus that you all talk about. And I want it. In, in that moment, we all were like, oh, oh so that's why we we're here. <laughs> we we're here for Fernando, and we we're here to learn that this vision of Jesus is so true. To experience the awe and wonder of God in communion is truth, and you need to bear witness to the glory of God. So that's the second part of Jesus' heart that this prayer reveals. His, his relationship with God, his vision for the church. And what's the third thing, you may ask? The third part of Jesus' heart that this prayer reveals is his attitude, Jesus' attitude. And you're like, what? Jesus had an attitude like a teenager? Like what? No, I don't mean that, okay? But in this prayer, Jesus has a very unique attitude that is kind of confusing. Jesus has an attitude of completion, like in verse 4, Jesus says, to the work that I have completed. And I'm like reading this and I'm like, Jesus, dude, like the hard stuff's just getting started, you know? Like you got to die and raise back to life. Like I'm kind of surprised that one of the disciples in the room, like Peter, you know, this sounds like something Peter would do for those of you who know Peter, didn't like lean over and was like, psst, psst. hey, Jesus, yeah, man, you've been saying that you have to die and stuff but you're not dead, so how's your work completed, you know? <laughs> and like, I would have done that. I, you know, it doesn't make sense. Maybe you're reading it, and we're talking about it this morning, and you're thinking the same thing. Like, why does Jesus have this attitude of completion, like his work is already done? This attitude reveals a profound truth about Jesus. You see, Jesus understands that his saving work isn't just to die on a cross, Jesus understands that his saving work isn't waiting to get started until he's arrested. 
Jesus' saving work began 30-something years ago in a little town called Bethlehem. You see, Jesus' saving work is not just dying on the cross. Jesus' saving work is just coming to be with us. In Jesus, God reconciled the world to himself. And that didn't just mean dying on a cross. It meant 30-something years ago, in the form of a baby, in the form of a human, Jesus became human. God became human to be with us. And I often think of the cross as like the prerequisite for the love of God. Like in a healthy way, you know? Like I'm not like trying to be bad or anything. It's just like I think of the cross as like the prerequisite. In other words, like Jesus or God felt one way about me and then Jesus died on the cross and boom, now God feels a different way about me. Like God felt anger, despise, whatever. Then Jesus dies on the cross and now God loves me. That's not how it is. That is not how it is, I love the way Dr. Bird says it in his commentary on this prayer. He says, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind. Instead, he came to express God's mind. Jesus didn't come to change God's mind. Instead, he came to express it. God didn't feel one way about us, and then Jesus died on the cross, and he was like, hey, Father, will you think this way about them? No, Jesus coming to earth, becoming human, was an expression of God's mind, an expression of the way that God feels about us, that he wants to be with us. I don't get it. But this prayer reveals that about Jesus' heart. His attitude of completion. So we have these three things that this prayer so beautifully reveals about Jesus' heart his relationship with God, his vision for the church, and his attitude of completion. But I wanted to close with this. One of the greatest tensions in all of the, the book of John and all of the New Testament is between this, the physical temple in Jerusalem and Jesus. The physical temple in Jerusalem and Jesus. So the physical temple in Jerusalem is where God has said, hey, this is the holy of holies. This is the place where my glory is revealed. This is where heaven and earth meet. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is struggling. The place where heaven and earth meet. God said this about the physical temple in Jerusalem. And then Jesus comes along and Jesus says, no, 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 I'm the temple now. Like I am where God's glory is revealed. I am where heaven and earth meet. And throughout the New Testament, throughout the book of John, the audience is wondering, what's the deal with this tension? Is it temple or Jesus? Temple or Jesus? And Jesus arrives in Jerusalem one final time and the ancient audience is expecting like fireworks. They're expecting something dramatic, some conflict, some confrontation where Jesus marches into the temple and settles this once and for all. And instead, Jesus marches up to the upper room with a group of disciples. He shares a meal with them. He answers their questions and he prays to the Father. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples and he prays for those who will follow, for his church, of you and of me. And in his final words of one of his final prayers and some of his last days on earth is the words, that I may be in them. Jesus, talking about his church, talking about those who will follow after him, of, of you and of me, of us. His final words are, that I may be in them. If you guys are like me, I, 
the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for me or some of his other like big cataclysmic events, I believe that Jesus did those things for me. I grew up in church. I've heard pastors and preachers and people, friends tell me like Jesus died on the cross for you. And I believe that. Some people struggle with that. They struggle with that idea. They struggle with believing that. But, but I truly believe that. It just makes sense. Like, if Jesus, Jesus wouldn't die on the cross, this big, huge event for like 12 people, you know? That doesn't make sense to me. And on top of that, those 12 people, they're not that great, you know? Like, one of them betrayed him. A few of them doubted him. One of them's like denied him a couple times. It makes sense that these big events, like Jesus dying on the cross, were for me. But with these like small, intimate moments, like in John 17, these small, intimate moments where Jesus is conversing and praying with the Father, I really struggle with the idea that Jesus was living and breathing and praying and dying for me, saving me, that he wants me and that he cares for me. And it's probably a super American way of like looking at this whole thing, but that's my lens. And I think it reveals a profound truth that John and Jesus is trying to remind us of. It's almost like Jesus is trying to remind us before all the big cataclysmic stuff, before I get betrayed, before I get arrested, before I'm tried, before I'm crucified, before I resurrect, I want to remind you that even in these small intimate moments that I was thinking of you. I wasn't just thinking of myself, Jesus is saying. I wasn't just thinking of my disciples. I was thinking of those who will come after. I was thinking of my church. I was thinking of you. There are a thousand things to grab, and there are a thousand things to teach from this text. But as I continue to pour over this prayer this week, I just felt the Holy Spirit constantly and continually reminding me of this fact. Jesus wants you. His final words and his final prayer that I may be in them just speak to this desire. Jesus wants you. He wants you to know the love and the joy and the life that he has for you. That was his prayer and that is his heart. And so as we leave here this morning, as we, as we inch closer and closer to, to the Easter would you just write that in your Bible, that Jesus wants you, that that was his prayer and that that is his heart? As you go through the book of John now or in the future, and as we inch closer to Easter and even after Easter, when it's easy to think of the, the big things, be reminded that in the small, intimate moments that Jesus wants you, that that was his prayer, and that that is his heart. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we just pause for a minute just to say thank you. With gratitude in our hearts, we pause to say thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for expressing your mind in the life of Jesus and coming to be with us and coming to die on the cross and raising back to life so that we may have conversation, so that we may have relation with you. And thank you for our community, a community marked by truth and unity that Father, we pray bears witness to your glory. I pray that you would, you would write these things on our hearts, that we would bind them 
around our neck as we, as we leave here and as we begin to enter into the Easter season. We love you. It's in your son's name that we pray, not in our name, because our name doesn't matter. To you be the hope and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.